I've been writing this letter in my head for years. I didn't know who it was going to. I didn't know under what case it would ever come out. It was just a matter of sitting down and actually finally, finally getting a way to get the story out. Why don't you go ahead and read it? Mr. Dorsey, nearly 19 years ago, my wife, who had an undiagnosed heart condition, fell and hit her head on a desk at work. She was found dead the next morning. Her name was Lori K. Klausudis, and she was 28 years old when she died. Her passing is the single most painful thing that I have ever had to deal with in my 52 years. You're listening to T.J. Klausudis, reading from a letter he wrote last May to Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter. Klausudis, an Air Force engineer, wanted to call attention to the ugly rumors and vile conspiracy theories that have circulated for years about the 2001 death of his wife. Conspiracy theories that have only gotten new traction in the age of social media. Have you ever tried to actually report a tweet and get action when you know that it has false information? Have you actually gone through that process before, Michael? I personally have not. Well... I mean, I get attacked all the time, but not in the way that is as painful as it was for you. It's literally the situation where you're trying one at a time, trying to set the record straight. And guess what? It's completely useless. There's nothing that you can do. Klausudis hit his breaking point this spring when the loudest Twitter voice in the world, at real Donald Trump, jumped on the conspiracy theories about his wife and promoted them like never before, suggesting in a series of tweets from the White House that Joe Scarborough, the former congressman who had been Lori's employer, may have murdered her, presumably to conceal an illicit affair. Whatever happened to your girlfriend, Trump wrote about Scarborough on April 30, without a scrap of evidence to back it up. And then, 12 days later, when will they open a cold case on the psycho Joe Scarborough matter in Florida? Did he get away with murder? Some people think so. The president's interest in the case was utterly transparent. While the two were once friendly, Scarborough had since become one of Trump's most relentless critics as the co-host of his MSNBC show, Morning Joe. He lies every day. A lot of times, he lies every minute. And the president wanted revenge. The president repeats his thinly veiled allegation against Joe Scarborough committing murder. The sitting president is insinuating yeah. a journalist is responsible for murder. He's the president of the United States, and he's accusing somebody of possibly murder. I mean, this is different. He's, he's, he's not a private citizen. He's the president. It got to the point that I literally could not stomach this. When Lori and I got married, we agreed for a lifelong partnership and that we were going to care and we were going to protect each other. And honestly, I just wanted one victory and just say, look, this has to stop. So TJ reached out to Twitter's Dorsey, writing a poignant plea from the heart to remove the president's hurtful and false words from the company's global platform in a letter that instantly grabbed public attention. Tonight, why a widower who tragically lost his wife is pleading with Twitter to take down the president's messages about her. Twitter has come under pressure to remove the president's tweets, including a plea from Lori Klausudis' widow. Here's more from TJ's letter. The frequency, intensity, the ugliness, and the promulgation of these horrifying lies ever increases on the internet. 
These conspiracy theorists, including most recently the President of the United States, continue to spread their bile and misinformation on your platform disparaging the memory of my wife and our marriage. My request is simple, please delete these tweets. I am now angry as well as frustrated and grieved. I'm asking you to intervene in this instance because the President of the United States has taken something that does not belong to him, the memory of my dead wife, and perverted it for perceived political gain. My wife deserves better. Thank you for your consideration. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Sincerely, Timothy J. Klausudis. TJ never got a response. But TJ's letter and the story he has to tell stands out as a powerful cautionary tale about a virus that has infected the American body politic, spreading falsehoods and polluting the democratic dialogue. And in ways nobody could have anticipated, it may well have been a tipping point, prodding the giants of Silicon Valley to finally get serious about curbing at least some of the lies that are spread on their platforms, as journalist Kara Swisher told me. His letter was so, so heartfelt and so poignant and so clear uh, at the same time of what he needed and fair. I think most people looked at it, including at the tech companies, and said, what are we doing? What are we facilitating? My name is Michael Isikoff, and I'm the chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. Last year, I did a Conspiracy Land series about a strikingly similar case. The conspiracy theories claiming that Seth Rich, a young Democratic National Committee staffer, was murdered by assassins working for Hillary Clinton because he had supposedly leaked emails to WikiLeaks. There was nothing to support these outlandish claims, but they circulated widely on Facebook and Twitter and ultimately made its way to Fox News following months of aggressive promotion by Russian propagandists and allies of President Trump. After TJ sent his letter to Twitter, he was put in touch with Seth's parents, finding with them a kinship of sorts. As it turned out, some of the same political actors and internet trolls who bedeviled the Rich family with their bogus claims about the death of their son were pushing similar conspiracy theories about the death of TJ's wife. Internet instigators like Matt Couch. We started uncovering corruption, you know, with Seth Rich. And the thing with Lori Klasanis, folks, is it literally is a... Uh, a nasty situation. It's definitely a cover-up as well. There's absolutely no doubt that this girl was murdered. And conspiracy peddler Jack Berkman. I heard Joe joking around about the death of Plazutus. Joe Scarborough bragging, indeed bragging, about killing Lori Plazutus. And TJ also reached out to me and has agreed to talk publicly for the first time anxious to tell exactly what happened to his wife and how the conspiracy theories about her death first began to circulate in the fevered swamps of American politics. It's an illuminating case study of what has been a bipartisan phenomenon. As you'll hear, the conspiracy theories about Lori Klausutis initially rose on the political left as a way for diehard Democratic partisans to stick it to a then-sitting Republican congressman. And then, over time, they migrated to the political right and got twisted and turbocharged by President Trump and his allies for purely expedient purposes. To be sure, this is Florida, and as you'll hear, there are a few oddities and twists in these events. An abrupt resignation from Congress, a security guard who changed his story, 
a medical examiner with more than a little baggage, just enough grist to craft a juicy conspiracy theory. But in the end, the core facts are clear and undisputed. This is a story about the spread of disinformation, fake news, if you will, and the role that social media companies play or fail to play in monitoring and policing the content on their platforms. And perhaps most of all, it's about the grievous collateral damage suffered by innocent bystanders like TJ Klausudis, who get caught up in an intricate web of ever-expanding lies. Lies that are recklessly amplified and broadcast to the world by the President of the United States. I know exactly why anybody cares about this story. And that's even more sad that the only reason that people care about this story is because of who tweeted about it. With TJ's help, we're now going to tell the real story of Joe Scarborough and Lori Klausudis in A Death in Florida, a new three-episode season of Yahoo News' Conspiracy Land, brought to you by Skullduggery. Chapter 1, Summertime, 2001. To truly understand how this unfolded, we'll need to go back to where it all started nearly two decades ago, during a different political moment with a very different media landscape. It was a time before Twitter or Facebook when cable news networks drove the news cycle. And that summer, the cable shows, indeed much of the American media, were obsessed with a salacious tabloid story, a mystery involving a missing girl, sex, and a member of Congress. Chandra Levy, an attractive and ambitious young woman who came to D.C. from California, vanished. As the case continues to dominate the news, it seems nothing can trump the story of the missing intern and her friendly congressman. You know, that summer was a crazy summer in Washington, D.C., because it seemed like everyone was consumed, transfixed, by the story of Chandra Levy. Sari Horwitz, a veteran investigative reporter for the Washington Post, is the co-author of Finding Chandra, a book about the saga of Chandra Levy. She was a 24-year-old intern from Modesto, California, and she suddenly went missing on May 1st, 2001. And the thing that made this a story, because just a missing girl would not have been a big story, but she was secretly having an affair with the married congressman from her district in California, whose name was Gary Condit. Condit was a veteran Democratic congressman who served on the House Intelligence Committee. As politicians are wont to do, especially when they are like Condit married, he refused to admit to the affair, only stoking the story, especially after police found messages from the congressman on Chandra's answering machine. By the middle of the month, the Washington police were focused on Condit as a potential suspect in Chandra's disappearance, and the media went wild. Uh, do, you, do you know anything about where Chandra Levy is? Why won't you take a polygraph? The pressure is mounting on Congressman Condit. Where is Chandra? Will there be justice for Chandra? Did you kill Chandra Levy? I did not. Did you have a romantic relationship with Chandra Levy? It's best that I not get into the details of the relationship. You know, this was a made-to-order story for the cable news networks because 
First of all, there was footage of Condit trying to get away from the pack of Washington journalists stalking him, waiting outside his house in Adams Morgan, morning and night, following him on Capitol Hill. So he's running away or he's trying to get away from the journalists. Then there's the Chandra Levy's family gave the media home movies and photos of her. So they would run that in a loop hour after hour. I think that when we look back now, it's kind of a situation of pack journalism at its worst. I should add that Horwitz's comments hit home for me because I was among the army of reporters covering the story, even interviewing Condit about it for Newsweek, an interview that, as I explained on CNN that summer, turned contentious. But then as he spoke and as he continued to talk, uh, he got angrier and angrier and, uh, and defiant, especially at the news media, uh, which he lashed out as uh, for turning this whole case into what he called a soap opera scandal circus designed to keep the ratings up. There was, of course, a slight problem with the media's obsession with the Condit Levy story. The affair notwithstanding, there actually was nothing that connected Condit to Chandra Levy's disappearance. Her body was eventually found in Rock Creek Park, and years later, another suspect identified. But by the time that became clear, it was too late to save Gary Condit's reputation. Gary Condit lost his congressional seat. It's been a great opportunity to be in public service. In 2002, he was defeated for re-election and pretty much disappeared from public life permanently embittered at how the media portrayed him as a possible murder suspect when he was only that most prosaic of characters, a philandering congressman with a wandering eye. And yet the media orgy about Gary Condit and Chandra Levy would soon spur whispers and speculation about a separate tragedy that same summer, this one involving the death of another young woman. Like Chandra, she was young, vivacious, and athletic. And like Chandra, she worked for a congressman, this one a Republican from Florida. And as with Chandra's case, it began as something of a mystery. Chapter 2. Lori, a life cut short. She was uh, an extremely kind, generous, and sweet person. And I know that will sound like waxing rhapsodic after the fact, but it's, it's actually a very good description of her yeah, I used to accuse her of actually being fairly naive, and I've come to change how I viewed that. Uh, there's very few people in this world who literally just have an unjaded view of things and, and actually want to help people. And, you know, I hate to say this, but after the fact, I realized she had a better view on life than the rest of us. And, and honestly, that's what really kills me about this whole thing, is she deserves so much better from our community than what she got. That's TJ talking about his wife, Lori. They had married in 1997, after a courtship that began at the Holy Family Catholic Church in Marietta, Georgia, when TJ spotted her during Sunday Mass singing in the choir, attracted to her sparkling smile. After months of working up the nerve, he finally introduced himself at a church picnic, asked her out, and by their second date, despite TJ's uptight military-style demeanor, they were dueling each other with laser tags, like, he says, a bunch of school kids. You know, coming up with an idea to go do something fun wasn't exactly my strong point. And um, yeah, she, she brought that out quite a bit. She had you on that one. Right. I think everybody in the universe probably does, quite honestly. Lori, who had graduated with honors from the University of Georgia with a degree in journalism, had moved with TJ to Fort Walton Beach in the Florida Panhandle 
and then later to a nearby town called Niceville, population about 11,000, close to Eglin Air Force Base, where TJ helped design the guidance systems for missiles and other weapons. While studying for her MBA, Lori threw herself into the community, serving on the board of the youth orchestra, singing again in her new local church's choir, and joining the local Young Republicans Club, even getting elected its president, all while finding the time to run two to four miles a day. She'd just walk into the room and her smile would just fill the room. You felt comfortable around her and at the same time excited because she seemed to be excited about anything that she was doing. That's Mary Pothast, who sang with Lori in the church choir and served with her at the Young Republicans Club. Lori, she says, was devout and conservative in her political views, even wearing a gold, precious little feet lapel that displayed the tiny feet of a 10-week-old fetus, a symbol for the pro-life movement. She also proselytized a bit, gently chiding Paul Lux, another Republican activist and now the election supervisor at Okaloosa County, for not attending Sunday church services. It was a very lighthearted, hey, you know, when are you coming back to church, you know, kind of cajoling more than, more than anything. And yet Lori also had an irreverent side that came out when she appeared in a local theater production of Wild Wild Women. It's a risque musical about a group of married women in a frontier town who vow to go on a love strike until their husbands put a stop to fighting each other. Lori plays Myrtle, a besotted newlywed who resists the wives' no-sex edict, especially after her husband protests. Well, I got such an ache in my heart for you, Myrtle. Ain't you got an ache in your heart for me? You know I do, Clamp. I-, I love you, and I miss you. Real bad. <laughs> After moving to the Panhandle, Lori was working in the local office of a bank when she landed a $21,000 a year job as constituent services coordinator for the local congressman, Joe Scarborough. But, and this is important, that hardly put her into regular contact with the boss. The Fort Walton Beach office where Lori worked was small with two rooms in a building next to the local IHOP. It was about an hour-long drive east from the district's main office in Pensacola, and one which Scarborough rarely visited during his trips to the district. Indeed, it eventually became clear to TJ, somewhat to his chagrin, that Scarborough didn't even know who his wife was. Yeah, this really bothered me. So Lori's telling me, hey, we got this birthday party. We got invited to Joe's birthday party. This and we get there and you realize, oh, it's, it's a fundraising event. We were there to sort of, as staff, not we, but, you know, the staff was there to basically help put on this event. And I remember when she walked up and she got introduced to Joe and someone goes, oh, this is, this is Lori from, you know, and, and, and you just saw that he didn't recognize her and didn't know her. It was just, and I was standing right there. Scarborough would later say that he recalled meeting Lori on three occasions. But that blank stare he gave Lori when they encountered each other at the birthday fundraiser in April 2000, the year after she went to work for Scarborough, rankled TJ. It just, I felt bad for her. And, and that's kind of where it was left. And she and I never actually ever talked about it. It was strictly, you know, I'm her husband. And, you know, I'm like, oh, geez, your boss doesn't even know who you are. That's got to hurt. 
After her death, there would be whispers, without a shred of evidence to support them, that Laurie was having an affair with Scarborough. Well, first of all, it's complete nonsense. You know, that was not who she was in Norwood. She, she, she took her vows. We're newlyweds, right? It just, it, uh, sorry, you can use this quote. It pisses me off. It's, it's nobody's business, one. Two, it didn't happen. It's just disgusting, to be quite honest with you. And I'm, by the way, I'm trying to keep the expletives at a minimum here. Still, Lori, from all accounts, enjoyed her job working for Scarborough, helping local residents get their sons and daughters appointments to the Naval Academy in West Point, drafting letters to help them get government grants, fixing problems with their social security payments. But in May 2001, Lori, like everybody else in Florida's first congressional district, got some news they were hardly expecting. Down in uh, Pensacola, Florida, the Pensacola News Journal is reporting this morning that uh, Republican Congressman Joe Scarborough is going to resign. He's citing personal reasons. He's got back problems, wants to spend more time with his kids. The surprise on this is that he's actually going to resign the seat. Just why Scarborough chose to give up his seat at that point led to all sorts of speculation. He had, after all, just been re-elected to his fourth term the previous November. Explaining his decision to his constituents, Scarborough got emotional. But now, after many months of prayer and deliberation, I've come to the inescapable conclusion that my greatest responsibility is at home in Pensacola with my boys. Bill Adair, who had gotten to know Scarborough pretty well while covering the Florida delegation for the St. Petersburg Times, says the announcement didn't completely come out of the blue. He had talked to me about the grind and how difficult it had been balancing his responsibilities as a parent, his desire to be back in his district, desire to see his his sons. And so I wasn't completely surprised there were some personal issues. He had, he had divorced his first wife. He, I, yeah, he had wanted to stay in touch with his kids, right? Yes. And Adair says it was also clear Scarborough, who had always been something of a congressional maverick, had other career paths in mind. But, you know, I guess what was interesting then was he quickly signed a deal with MSNBC. It was relatively soon after that, I think, that he started doing Scarborough Country it appealed to his creative side, I think, because he wanted to get more into the world of media. Joe Scarborough has seen it all. Welcome to Scarborough Country. Actually, Scarborough's first MSNBC show, Scarborough Country, didn't start until nearly two years later. But there's little question that Scarborough's resignation from the House opened the door for him to pursue a career as a TV personality that he clearly found more to his liking. And it also meant that Lori and the rest of the staff started looking for a new job. And according to TJ, she had just gotten a lead on one when he checked in with her midday on July 19th, 2001. On the 19th, I called Lori, it was about lunchtime. And it was an interesting conversation because we both had just exciting news for each other. TJ had flown to the Washington area that week for a major presentation at the Pentagon that he and a colleague named Jay were to give to the new head of DARPA, the elite Pentagon unit that specializes in developing and funding new technologies for the U.S. military. It was a big opportunity for him, and he called midday to check in with Lori, 
and told her about preparing for his big meeting the next day. And I was telling her, hey, you know, I'm going to be up late. And, um, and then she's telling me her good news. She's like, look, one, she just got a new lead for, for, for a job. And it was a job interview, and I think it was with a radio station. And she was excited about that. And so we had a wonderful phone call. So, you know, we said goodnight before one o'clock, and we knew we were going to talk to each other the next day. Lori was all alone in the office that day. Her supervisor, the only other person who worked in the tiny office, was out of town. About 4.30, her friend from the Young Republicans, Mary Pothast, called. I called her to ask her if she wanted to get together that night for dinner. Mary also had another ask. Would Lori knock doors with her that Saturday for Jeff Miller, a Republican who was running in the special election to fill Scarborough's seat? And she flat turned me down for both. And I can remember the, the reason why was uh, she had too much work to do that night and the next night to clean the house and get it ready because Saturday she was going to be spending it with her husband because her husband was out of town on business and he was coming home. She didn't want to have any house chores or anything left to do other than to spend time with him. But Lori was also feeling fidgety and out of sorts. Minutes after she got off the phone with Mary, another friend, Tiffany Bates, called Lori to congratulate her about her upcoming job interview. I'm not feeling very well, Lori told her, according to a later police interview. Tiffany thought it might have something to do with her allergies. A mail carrier who delivered a certified letter to the office that day said Lori told him much the same thing, that she was feeling nervous because she had drank too much coffee that day. Meanwhile, back in Washington... Mr. Speaker, by the direction of the Committee on Rules, I call up House Resolution 196 and ask for its immediate consideration. The House of Representatives had a full-day session, debating an appropriations bill and a measure dealing with tax deductions for charitable groups. Among those present on the House floor, Joe Scarborough. During our discussion in the Judiciary Committee, no one caught this sense of the issue more sensitively than our distinguished colleague from Florida, Mr. Scarborough. The congressional record clearly shows Scarborough voted six times on the floor of the House that day, right up to when the House adjourned at 9.49 p.m. Speaker, I move that the House do now adjourn. The next morning, July 20, Andreas and Juanita Bergman arrived at Scarborough's office in Fort Walton Beach just minutes after it was supposed to open at 8 a.m., looking for help to get a work permit extended. We reviewed a 29-page report by the Fort Walton Police Department that details what happened next. When they entered the office, the front door was unlocked and lights were on. They observed a female laying on the floor. Mrs. Bergman is an ex-nurse, so she took the arm of the female and attempted to find a pulse. Her husband called 911. Officer Steven Seguera was among the first officers to arrive on the scene. Here's what he saw, according to that police report. I observed the body of a female later identified as Lori Klausutis, 28 years of age, white female. She was flat on her back, fully dressed. Foam was coming from her mouth and nose. There was some red substance, probably blood, on the outer edges of the foam. There was an office chair near her head. There was no indication of foul play observed.
Back in Northern Virginia, TJ was about to have his meeting at DARPA when he was told he had an urgent phone call. So I uh, walk out and uh, pick up the phone, and it's, it's my immediate boss, and he is crying. And I'm like, uh, okay, Matt, what's going on? He says, well, I can't tell you. I've been told I can't tell you. I'm like, Matt, stop it. You know, what the hell's going on? TJ says much of the rest of the day is a blur. He rushed to the airport and flew back to Florida on the same plane as Scarborough, who was completely in the dark about what had happened. By the way, you have not lived until you're trying to sit on an airplane and not cry and draw attention to yourself. And it was surreal. At this point, it's worth reviewing what's in that police report. The door to the office had been left open overnight. The security guard had initially told the police he had locked the door, then later acknowledged he had screwed up and never actually done so. But the officers who arrived that morning saw no sign of any intruders, no sign of any robbery, no sign of any struggle, and, as they would repeat over and over, absolutely no sign of foul play. But there was still a mystery. What had happened to a seemingly healthy, young, vibrant woman that would cause her sudden death? At this point, says TJ, You know, we just don't know. We all want to know. We're just sort of in the dark here in the beginning of this story, to be honest with you. Chapter 3. The Medical Examiner Every conspiracy theory needs a heavy, a character whose actions or background can be used to breed suspicion. And in this case, there was an obvious candidate, Michael Berkland. There's probably nobody else around that knows more about Lori Clasutis' death than me. Berkland, an osteopath, was the deputy medical examiner in Florida's first judicial district at the time. He's a colorful and, as you'll hear, controversial character with a somewhat checkered career. He was off on another case in Pensacola that morning when he got a sudden call from one of his assistants. And she goes, well, I need you back over here in Fort Walton for a death scene. I said, okay, sure. And I said, what do you got? She goes, well, I've got a, a, a dead secretary in a congressman's office. And, of course, it was right at the height of the Condit scandal out of Washington where the intern went missing. And I, uh, I, I made a comment uh, that I won't repeat on the podcast, but it was uh, like, you are kidding me. Berkland rushed to the scene and inspected Lori's body, quickly realizing he had a genuine riddle on his hands. He also quickly concluded, based on the state of rigor mortis, that she had been dead more than 12 hours, putting the time of death as sometime late in the afternoon or early evening the previous day. The question was, what had caused it? I knew it was going to be a high visibility type thing right from the get-go. We have a death that's uh, in a young female uh, that I have no apparent external evidence of injury that is viewed as significant at that time. Okay? It's like she dropped in mid-stride or mid-sentence is what it it looks like. This sounds like, you know, as I said, quite a medical mystery you've got. They are. uh, Some cases are more straightforward, uh, and the answer is is obvious. Uh, Others, you have to just do kind of like a painstaking checklist of, you know, what all could it be? And then one by one, you start eliminating things. So literally, once you, once you, it's kind of like Sherlock Holmes. Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever's left, no matter how improbable, must be the answer. 
Improbable is pretty much what Berkland came up with. He ordered a toxicology report, which found no illegal or any other drugs in her system other than aspirin. He also found, contrary to what some had speculated, that she wasn't pregnant. But Berkland did find two important clues. The first is that while Lori had a small abrasion on the left side of her head, the damage to her brain was on the right side. That's what the pathologists call a contra-coup. What happens when somebody falls and hits a fixed object, such as the office desk on which Lori banged her head when she fell? This is as opposed to a coup injury, where the brain damage is on the same side of the head where the blow occurred, the sort of injury consistent with being hit by a moving object, such as a club or a weapon. Okay, so this was a classic contra-coup contusion to the brain. That's where the head is moving, as opposed to it was stationary before, but now the head is moving and it strikes something that's not moving. The second clue is that Lori had an abnormal heart, a previously undiagnosed sloppy mitral valve, which in rare cases can trigger a cardiac arrhythmia that could well have caused her to faint. It turns out that when she was a teenager, Lori may well have suffered from such an attack. Driving a car one night, she fainted, crashed the car, and ended up in a coma in the hospital. Berkland didn't know the details about this, but upon discovering her ballooned mitral valve, Berkland, Sherlock Holmes style, reached his deductive conclusion. Lori had once again lost consciousness, most likely from a cardiac arrhythmia, fell, slammed her head against her desk, and died from the injuries to her brain. Everything now ties together very nicely. It may not have been the answer that everybody was looking for, but this is the scientific answer as to what happened. What was the answer everybody was looking for? Oh, I think a lot of people at the, back at the time would have uh, you know, been happy to have blamed Joe Scarborough for the death. And you know, it would have just been another sensational case and stuff like that. But uh, Joe didn't have anything to do with this death, period. How confident are you in your findings? Extreme. Would you say totally? Are you 100%, 95%? What would you say? Oh, on the basis of everything, 100%. Brooklyn announced his findings in late August, more than a month after Lori had died. But it wasn't the end of the story in the way he had hoped. First of all, there were questions, legitimate ones about Brooklyn himself that only mounted over time. In 1996, he had been fired as the medical examiner in Jackson County, Missouri, for failing to complete timely autopsies and finish all the work he had claimed to. Then in Florida in 2003, he was fired again for similar reasons and even lost his medical license. And then finally in 2012, 11 years after Lori's death, there was this. Tucked away in a storage unit in Pensacola, authorities found more than 100 human organs and tissue from more than 100 different bodies. The renter of the unit, former medical examiner Michael Berkland. What officials found inside Berkland's unit were hearts, brains, and other body parts stored in styrofoam cups and Ziploc bags. The remains of private autopsies he had conducted over the years, not from official ones like he had conducted of Lori Clausutis. Berkland was arrested and charged with improper storage of hazardous wastes and theft, although those charges were later dismissed after he entered into a pretrial intervention program. 
you can understand why people hearing this might find it a bit ghoulish that you had all these body parts. I think most people don't understand what takes place at an Emmy's office or how that place works. So a lot of people look at what we do as ghoulish anyway, but it's not, it's scientific. The multiple accusations against Birkeland over the years inevitably led to questions over whether his findings about Lori Clausutis could be trusted. Birkeland, for his part, insisted that none of the accusations against him in any way challenged the legitimacy or accuracy of his autopsy findings. Let's cut to the chase. What my findings are on any individual autopsy report, of which there's thousands and thousands and thousands, nobody's ever changed an autopsy of mine yet. Nobody's ever went back and, and said, oh, that's, that's totally wrong, let me change this. Just to be sure, we sent Birkeland's autopsy report to two distinguished pathologists with decades of experience. One was Dr. Cyril Wecht, a world-renowned expert who has been consulted on high-profile death cases dating back to the U.S. House investigation into John F. Kennedy's assassination. The other is Dr. Jonathan Arden, the former medical examiner in Washington, D.C., and they both told us the same thing. Here's Dr. Wecht. There was no reason to uh, question uh, the um, findings and whatever he may have done of an inadequate, improper nature in the past is certainly not reflected in this particular autopsy report, which is quite thorough, detailed, and something even more than you find in regular forensic pathology autopsy protocols. And here's Dr. Arden. I have reviewed the autopsy report on Laurie Clasutis by Dr. Brooklyn, and in fact, I agree with his conclusions. The pattern of her brain injury is not consistent with her having been struck by an object such as by an assailant. I think Dr. Brooklyn was correct when he put all the facts and evidence together that her head trauma was the result of a fall. I see nothing suspicious in her death. And bottom line, you see no problems in Dr. Birkeland's report on this. Correct. I have no problems with Dr. Birkeland's report of the autopsy, nor with his conclusions. There was, of course, another big reason those conspiracy theories started to circulate back in 2001, and it has nothing to do with the medical evidence. It goes back to what we told you about before. This was the season that the media was obsessed with Chandra Levy and Gary Condon. And within days after Lori's death and before Birkeland had issued his findings, letters started to appear in the local Fort Walton newspaper, the Daily Northwest Press, demanding to know why the death of Lori Clausutis wasn't getting the same attention as the disappearance of Chandra Levy. Justice for Lori read the headline on one, Do you smell that? That is the stomach-clenching stench of overwhelming hypocrisy, the letter read. TJ didn't blame Scarborough for what happened to Lori. The congressman even showed up for the showing of Lori's casket prior to her funeral, and he and TJ hugged. But TJ and Lori's parents were furious at the attention the Daily Northwest Press was giving the story. The paper had been pushing for the public release of Birkeland's autopsy and the Fort Walton police report, neither of which was disclosed for more than a month after her death. Convinced that the paper was looking for cheap headlines, TJ mounted his first public protest. He marched into the paper's newsroom one day, unannounced, 
and confronted the editor about why the Daily Northwest Press reporters kept writing about his dead wife. So I show up looking maybe slightly menacing, announce who I am and that the editor better be in his office by the time I walk over there. The editor, Ralph Routon, was indeed in his office. I saw him walking across the newsroom and and he was definitely not a happy camper and he was about as intimidating of a presence as you would expect someone who's maybe a little over six feet and, and uh, extremely uh, well cut. He and I have a very long conversation where we disagreed on many things. I explained to him that I thought his position was quite wrong. It caused a lot of great deal of pain and that he had actually been manipulated by all of these external, and I'm going to use the term forces because I can't think of a better word. It really came down to this, Gary Condon and the Chandra Levy story that had existed about, I, I don't know, I don't remember, but two months prior to that. It felt like they were trying to build a big sensational story that would get national interest in this. Rowden, for his part, denies this and insists that he and his reporters were simply trying to get definitive answers about an unresolved death that had shocked the community. To put the story to rest, not to fuel any conspiracy theories. But as the days and weeks went on, TJ noticed more and more stories started popping up on liberal blogs, such as the Democratic Underground, Truth Out, and the message board of the left-leaning American Prospect, all insisting that the Republican Scarborough be given the same scrutiny as the Democrat Condit. With Lori Klesudis, it seems possible that a corrupt North Florida establishment is determined to keep the lid on the case, even if that means silencing the news, read the entry on the American Prospect site. And TJ was beside himself. I'd gotten obsessed with it. And so I want to scream about this. And in the years to come, TJ Klausudis would have much more to scream about. Coming next, the demands from liberals for more coverage of Lori's death grow louder. You're fanning the flames of somebody's tragic death without any evidence there was anything improper. Oh my fucking God, are you serious? My point, which I've made several times, was that Joe, had he been a Democrat, that would have been a story. And then are revived again, years later, by the President of the United States, after his once friendly relationship with Scarborough turns toxic. Yeah, a lot of people suggest that. Certainly a very suspicious situation, very sad. Very sad and very suspicious. As you know, there's no statute of limitations. 